This is Manna at Valley Baptist Church. Together, we take an in-depth, expository look at God's Word. So open your Bible and join us as we do life together. And now, here's Brad Hannick. Fellow students, if you'd be so kind, open your Bibles to Numbers 14. Numbers 14. We're going to be continuing our study uh, in the book of Numbers and looking at the children of Israel and their journey from Exodus, the land of slavery, to Cain and the land of freedom. Our lesson today reviews a cycle that uh, in Israel's history, unfortunately, is repeated over and over and over again. Israel rebels against God. Moses intercedes for their sin. God forgives them and judges them. And Israel rebels again. Sounds like us, right? There's no laughter, notice. So Israel, just historically, has come out of Egypt about 24 months ago. So they've been in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai for about two years. They have seen God's mighty power. They saw the 10 plagues of Egypt. They saw the Red Sea parted. God's provided manna for them in the wilderness and water and things like that. And then Mount Sinai, where they camped for about 11 and a half months, God gave them his covenant. It was a conditional covenant. He says, if you obey this, this will be the consequence. And they said, we promise to obey. So they agreed to obey the Lord. And yet, when Moses spent 40 days at the top of Mount Sinai getting the law, Before the 40 days were up, Israel had decided to throw a party at the bottom of the foot of the hill, and they had an idolatrous, drunken orgy at the foot of the mountain. God was so angry, he threatened to destroy them, but Moses interceded. Moses was the mediator. Moses pleaded with God to forgive them, and God did. Now, they left Mount Sinai after about 11 and a half months. They're traveling through on the way to the promised land, and every time there's a problem, they complain. And they grumble and they gripe and they say, God, you're not giving us what we need. You're not giving us what we want. What we want is a predictable, safe, convenient life that we had in Egypt. It didn't require any faith in God. We were slaves. We didn't even have to think. We were told what to do, when to do, why to do. That's the kind of life we want. Following God into Canaan required adventure. And that required faith, and that required not a lot of predictability because God said, by the way, when you get out of the wilderness and you get to Canaan, you're going to have to go to war. You're going to have to fight, and they didn't want to do that. So Israel is continually discontented with what God provides. So this book of Numbers covers about 40 years. Actually, it covers 40 years to the day, from the day they left Egypt to the day they get into Canaan. And this entire 40 years, you're going to see them bellyache, complain, grumble, and rebel against the Lord over and over. So this cycle of they rebel, Moses intercede, God forgives even though he judges them, and they turn around and rebel again, this is going to go on and on and on for 40 years. And it's easy for us to say, what a bunch of losers. And then the Holy Spirit says, look in the mirror, because Israel is an example for us so that we learn from them and not do that. So they get to the promised land. We discovered last week, God tells them, send out spies. They spy out the promised land. They see the giants. They come back. They are terrified. They refuse to follow God into Canaan. They reject 
trusting in him, and they actually plan to go back to Egypt and go back to slavery because they think slavery is preferable to war and entering Canaan. So Moses and Aaron, as we discovered last week, fall on their faces. They intercede for the nation because they know every time Israel rebels, God shows up, and he's not happy with their rebellion. So they're on their face interceding for them. Joshua and Caleb, as we discovered last week, admonished the people to trust God and follow him into the land. Verse 10 of chapter 14 is where we're going to pick up the narrative this morning. Verse 10 of chapter 14 of Numbers. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in front in the tent of meaning to all the sons of Israel. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. This is a principle. Those who repeatedly reject God's grace may cross the line of no return where the only outcome is judgment. Let me say that again. Those who repeatedly reject God's grace may cross the line of no return where the only outcome is judgment. So Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb, four people stand alone against two and a half million Israelites. The entire nation has basically picked up stones and they're ready to stone these four with rocks and kill them because Joshua and Caleb are saying we should go into the land and they go, no, we're going back to Canaan. This is pretty high drama. It looks like the good guys are going to lose. And as is always the case, God's timing is perfect. And in God's perfect time, he himself appears. God appears in the blinding glory cloud. Remember, he lives in a cloud. He meets people in a cloud over the tent of meeting. And he shows up. And I bet when that glory cloud lit up like lightning, I bet all the talking stopped right there. God didn't even speak to the nation. He spoke only to Moses, who was interceding for them. He was flat on his face praying for them. And God is righteously furious at Israel's repeated rejection of him. God uses an interesting word. He uses the word spurn. He said, this nation has spurned me. That's a very strong word. It means to despise. It means to have contempt for. So he says, this nation has contempt for me. This nation despises me. See, here's the problem. Israel had seen God's miracles for 24 months now, over and over and over, and they still refused to believe God's word and follow him. I don't know if I should use this, but we, we have a, a, in, in our culture a vernacular when people want to express contempt for someone, they flip them a bird, right? Which is that, I'm using that very carefully, that that symbol is despicable. It shows contempt and despising of who you're doing that to. That's what Israel is doing to God. That's exact. I'm using that on purpose and very carefully, but that's exactly. They are spitting on God after having seen all of the work and the miracles and the loving care he's shown they basically did that to God, and they refused to believe him and follow him, and their basic sin is unbelief. They refuse to believe what God says. Now, when you refuse to believe what God says, you are calling God a liar. Unbelief is not neutral. 
God says, do this, and you say, I don't believe you're saying you're lying. That's pretty significant, pretty serious. God told Adam and Eve what? Don't eat the fruit or you will die. They didn't believe God. They ate the fruit and death entered the universe. God illustrates the seriousness of unbelief in Hebrews 3.18. When he says, And to whom did he, God, swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. He's talking about this generation of Israelites, and his rest is Canaan. He says, they're not going into the land because they called me a liar. They refused to believe. They refused to follow. And the writer of Hebrews then talks to us as Christians, and he says, you Christians, don't do what they did. Don't do what they did, Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brethren, that's you and I, lest there be any of you who has an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you should be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, sin always disbelieves what God says because sin believes Satan's lies. If you believe what Satan says, then you're not going to believe what God says and vice versa. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you repeatedly refuse to believe God, you're going to have a hard heart. You're going to have a calloused heart. You're going to have a heart that will no longer be able to respond to God. And when God says, child of God, son or daughter, trust and obey me, and you say, no, you are calling God a liar. And that leads to judgment. God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy the whole nation. I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start a new nation after you. You're going to get to be a patriarch. We're going to have a nation called after your name. Now, I think this was as much a test of Moses' character as anything else. I mean, it's pretty heady stuff. God says, you know, Moses, I value you so much, I'm going to wipe them out, and we're going to start a nation, and it's going to be called after your name. Wow, pretty significant. It's interesting, Moses doesn't even consider that. He doesn't consider his own personal gain. He doesn't even primarily concern with the good of God's people. I mean, he loves them. He leads them. He's called to shepherd them. We're going to find out in verse 13 that Moses intercedes for the nation so that God will not destroy them, not based on the people, but based on the character of God. And it's on that basis that he intercedes for the sins of the nation. So if we go to verse 13, but Moses said to the Lord, now Moses is talking to God and he's going to try and persuade God not to destroy the nation. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, Canaan. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye, while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then all the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Here's the principle. Ultimately, God's forgiveness does not depend on our loyal conduct, but on his loving character. Ultimately, God's forgiveness does not depend on our loyal conduct, but on his loving character. You know, you think Moses would have tried to persuade God, don't wipe this people out because of all the human carnage. I mean, this is going to create a lot of suffering if you wipe them all out, right? So please don't do that. Moses is not focused on the people. He's focused on God. Moses has a radical God-centered perspective very alien to our culture. We have a very human-centered culture. We put ourselves at the middle of everything. God, you should do this because of me, right? I mean, that's what we do as people, even Christians. Moses is completely focused on God, and he puts God at the middle. He says, God, if you kill this nation, your reputation among the other nations of the world is going to be harmed because everybody's watching Let me tell you, when God parted the Red Sea and those 10 plagues occurred and then he parted the Red Sea and took them out, that word spread over the entire Near East because we know that Rahab, when Joshua finally did enter the land 40 years later, said, we've been watching you in the desert for 40 years. We know about the manna. We know about the water from the rock. We know about the cloud. We know about the Red Sea. We have been terrified of you for 40 years because we knew you were coming. So Moses says, God, everybody's watching. If you kill them, they're going to conclude that you weren't strong enough to bring them into the land. They're going to conclude that their sins, Israel's sins, were so great to handle, you just couldn't deal with it, so you wiped them out. Which means that human sin is greater than your glory, God, and you don't want to do that. It's going to lead all these pagan nations to believe that their false gods are greater than you, and Lord, that's not true. It's going to damage your glory, and it'll give them a false impression. So pardon them and preserve your own glory. But by the way, Lord, you made a covenant. You made a promise. You promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? You promised them that their descendants would inherit this land. You can't break your word. You're a promise keeper. God never breaks his word. And then he says, let the power of the Lord be great. It's interesting. He says, Lord, show your power not by wiping them out, show your power by forgiving them. Demonstrate your power by forgiving them. You know, Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was receiving the covenant from God, the law. And God gave Moses a description of himself. He said, Moses, you can't see me. I'm invisible. I'm a spirit. But I'm going to tell you about who I am. I'm going to tell you my character. So he says, Moses, here's who I am. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Moses quotes that back to God here when he pleads for forgiveness. He says, Lord, you told me that you are a God who's slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and you're a forgiving God. Lord, act according to your own self-description. God, you are both holy and merciful, and your glory is going to be revealed by your justice as well as your mercy. 
And I know since you're holy, you have to punish sin. But I also know that since you're merciful, you forgive sin. So demonstrate your lordship. Demonstrate your infinite love and your infinite power and your holy justice by forgiving sins. And of course, this is the character of God. God is perfectly holy, therefore sin has to be dealt with. But he's also perfectly loving, therefore he delights to forgive sin. And you say, well, that's a bit of a paradox because if he judges sin, how does he forgive sin? And we know that the solution is in the person of Jesus Christ, correct? Jesus Christ came and he took the punishment, our punishment, upon himself so we could receive God's grace and God's mercy because Jesus took our punishment and we receive his righteousness. So that's the resolution of that in our time. But Moses is pleading with God not to destroy them. He says, you're a holy God, you're a gracious God, your reputation matters among the Gentiles, your glory matters. You made a promise, and by the way, you've forgiven these people many times before, so please do it again. Now, if you've ever interceded for the sins of somebody else, on what basis do you ask God to take action? If you ask God to show mercy on anything other than his character, you're kidding yourself. You can't say, oh God, show mercy to this person because they're really a good person. No, they're not. All have sinned. None of us deserve mercy. Moses understands that if he's going to appeal to God to take action, he needs to appeal to God on basis of who God is and God's character, not our conduct. So Moses is a mediator. Moses is going between God and going between man. By the way, many of you are parents and grandparents, and you have friends that are lost. This is a good model for how you pray for them. If you want to know how to pray for someone who needs Jesus, this is a very good prayer to study. Moses did this twice. He did this at the foot of Mount Sinai when God wanted to wipe him out, and he did it again here. So he appeals to God to forgive the sinful nation, not based on their conduct, but based on their character. God shows us, un, obviously, undeserved favor today as well. That's salvation, which is why it's so precious. Verse 20 is one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. If you ever prayed for your children and grandchildren, you definitely want to hear this. But, verse 21, Indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Here's the principle. Choosing to do wrong when you know what is right insults God's glory and will be punished. Choosing to do what's wrong when you know what is right insults God's glory and will be punished. God says, I've pardoned them according to your word. If you want proof, if you want evidence that your prayers matter, you got it right here, right? God does listen and God does act based on the intercession of his people. We talk about prayer in this class a lot because we circulate prayer requests. And I want you to know that your prayers matter. Because when you pray, there is actually someone up there listening. God himself listens to our prayers and he hears them. 
I don't understand the relationship between the sovereignty, eternal wisdom of God and our prayers, but I do know the Bible says God hears, God listens, God takes heed, and he responds to our prayers according to his divine wisdom. Sometimes it's good that God tells us no, right? You ever prayed for something and then two years later saying, man, I'm glad you didn't answer that one? With a yes, I'm glad you said no or wait. So we trust God's wisdom in answering those prayers, but he invites us and commands us to bring our requests and our needs and our thanks to him. Now, God says, I've pardoned them according to your word, but that forgiveness doesn't mean there's any consequences. Doesn't mean the consequences go away. God describes this generation. If you want to know how God felt about these people, this is a hard verse, but it's accurate. Psalm 95, verse 10. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. This is God speaking. And said, they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. And you say, well, Brad, I don't understand how God can pardon them and they still didn't get into the land. I mean, if, if God forgives sin, doesn't all the consequences go away? No. My father smoked for 55 years, was sorry about it, asked for forgiveness, and died of lung cancer. Consequences sometimes are not taken care of. God pardoned them in the sense that he didn't wipe them all out immediately, which they deserved. They all deserved to die on the spot, and God said, I'm going to delay your death sins. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you 38 years to repent in the wilderness. You're going to have a number of decades in the wilderness where each of you can repent of your sin, get to heaven. The sin was so egregious because they had all seen God personally work for them for two years. They'd seen the manna, they'd seen the Red Sea, they'd seen the plagues, they'd seen the water, they'd seen the quail, they were at Mount Sinai, they'd heard the law given, they were at the foot of the mountain when the whole mountain was shaking, they had seen the mountain on fire and thunder and lightning when God spoke to them. They had witnessed the glory of God firsthand, and they still called him a liar and refused to believe him. John Piper has said that the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. The glory of God is the going public. It's the public expression of his character, his holiness. It is the infinite in beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. So when God says, you've spit on my glory, he's saying, you're spitting on me because my glory is my public expression of who I am. God puts his holiness on display through his creation. God's glory is not hidden away. God's glory is exhibited for everyone to see. Look at Psalm 19, verse 1. It says, the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Isaiah 6.3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's creation is shouting his glory. You don't have to go looking for it under a rock. Open your eyes when you see the seasons, when you see the trees, when you see vegetation, when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars. Every morning the sun comes up because the earth just managed another rotation on its axis. That's the glory of God. That's the handiwork of God. That's the power of God working, and it's in front of our eyes every day, all day. The entire creation of God reveals the nature of God, and many people 
refuse to see it. They say that this entire complex creation came about by random chance. They say there is no God. This whole infinitely complex creation came from absolutely nothing. That's an insult. That's an insult to God. If you were a parent and you'd gone to a great deal of work to craft a gift for your child or grandchild, and they told you, you didn't make that. That just came about by chance. What an insult. You've got a few hundred hours into this great gift you've put together for Christmas, and they shine you on and basically say, I don't buy it. God values his glory above everything else. Isaiah 42 says, this is God describing himself, says, I am the Lord, which means master, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. See, Moses understood, and we are to understand, that God is the rightful center of everything. He is the center of gravity for the entire universe because he's the creator. We're the creation. We rotate around him. He doesn't rotate around us. The great sin of Adam and Eve and the great sin of Satan is we want to be the center. And we want God to rotate around us. We want God to be our servant. He says, no, 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 no. I'm the center. My glory is the center. My creations decide to display my glory, and you are to honor that. Human rebellion is a direct attack on the glory of God. Sin literally is spitting on God's glory. I'm trying to be graphic here without being gross. But sin spits on God's glory. It defaces it. It pukes on it. It rejects it. And God says, I'm not going to tolerate that. Those of us who know Jesus Christ are even more accountable because the glory of God lives in you. Doesn't he? Jesus Christ lives in us. God himself through the Holy Spirit indwells us, which is just amazing grace. And that's why sin in the Christian is so despicable. Because of all people who know better, we should know better. And God is so angry with Israel because they know better. They, of all people, should know better enough to trust and obey him. But they had rejected him. But not everyone. Verse 24 is one of the great verses. This is God speaking. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Here's the principle. God rewards those who follow him fully because they believe his promises and obey his commands. God rewards those who follow him fully because they believe his promises and obey his commands. And he calls Caleb my servant. The highest tribute that you will ever see in the Old Testament was to be called the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. The word Caleb literally means dog. A dog is the most loyal, faithful, domesticated animal on earth. A dog always follows their master. Correct? Say yes. And God said that Caleb followed him fully. Caleb always followed his king, his master, God, and his name reflected that. The second meaning of the name Caleb is all heart or wholehearted. 
Caleb didn't do anything half-heartedly. God said that Caleb followed God fully, which means wholeheartedly, single-mindedly, completely, closely, entirely. Now, when you follow somebody fully, it means you submit to the direction they choose to take in everything. Caleb followed the Lord with his whole heart in Egypt. He followed the Lord with his whole heart out of Egypt. He followed the Lord with his whole heart through the wilderness, and he followed the Lord with his whole heart into the promised land. He followed God entirely. He followed God in everything, not just in some things. There's a lot of examples in Scripture of people who did not follow the Lord their God fully. King Saul followed God conveniently. When it was convenient, he followed God. When it was not convenient, he didn't. You know, it became inconvenient to wait for Samuel to show up to offer a sacrifice. He just offered it himself. It was a violation, but, you know, I mean, it was inconvenient. So God will understand. Not. The English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, A spirit of partial obedience is a spirit of radical disobedience. God will have no part or partial with partial obedience. It really is all or nothing. You can't be a little bit pregnant, and you can't be a little bit obedient. Either you is or you ain't. Amen? Say yes. So, Caleb followed sincerely. Caleb was not a hypocrite. We know Caleb's obedience was genuine. You know how we know that? He was willing to speak up for God when there were two million people who were trying to kill him. Now, we know he was sincere. We know that he was honest, we know that he was legitimate, we know he was a man of courage because they were ready to stone him to death, and he still told them, go into the land because God said so. We also know that Caleb followed God fully, and he followed God persistently to the date of his death. He was 40 years old when he spied out the land. He faithfully followed God and Moses in the wilderness for the next 38 years. Have you ever thought, Carolyn noticed this to me a couple weeks ago, Caleb and Joshua were stuck wandering in the wilderness with a bunch of disobedient Israelites for 40 years, even though they had been faithful. They had stood for God. They had said, we should go into the land and conquer it. Two and a half million of them said, no, 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 no. God says, fine, you're going to wander another 38 years. And they were stuck with a bunch of disobedient Israelites for 38 years in the wilderness, even though they had been obedient. And you and I think that life isn't always fair. Yeah. See, someone else's sin had cost them 38 years of their life. But you and I never hear them complaining because they understood that God had lessons for them to learn during that 38 years. Israel obviously wasn't ready to go into the land yet. They had lessons to learn. God said, it's going to take 38 years for me to teach you to trust me and obey me, and that's what we're going to do. So Caleb followed Moses after Moses died, Caleb followed Joshua when they conquered Caleb, when they conquered Canaan. Joshua 14 is one of my favorites. It says that after they conquered Caleb, a Canaan, Caleb comes to Joshua at age 85. And he reminds Joshua that Moses had promised him the city of Hebron and the surrounding hill country. This was the fortified stronghold of the sons of Anak. And the sons of Anak were the giants that had terrified Israel 40 years before. Caleb shows up at 85 and he says, give me this mountain. Give me the city of Hebron. Give me the fortified city. We're going in and conquering it. And he's 85 years old. And God honored Caleb 
by giving him the hardest part of the country to conquer. He honored him by giving him the hardest battle, the toughest fight, not the easiest. You notice that Caleb doesn't say, I, I think I want a chase lounge on a sandy beach with the soft breezes, a cool drink, and the ukuleles, you know. I think I want to just kind of retire and take it easy. Is that what he says? He says, give me the tough one. Give me that mountain. Joshua 15, 14 tells us that Caleb captured the city and drove out the giants. At 85 years old, he was still in the fight. He was still following the Lord his God fully. And the lessons for us are real simple. Don't you dare retire, retreat, and rot in selfishness. I'm on my hobby horse, so get your seatbelts on. You know, we all may leave earthly employment. No problem. There's nothing wrong with physical retirement. Sincerely, there's not. But in God's kingdom, you never retire. You never retire from kingdom work. You redeploy. God's got another job for you to do. The day you run out of God's work on this planet, you're in heaven. So don't retire from kingdom work. Don't be like Lot's wife. She followed the angels out of Sodom, but she left her heart in San Francisco. <clears throat> you know, when she left Sodom, she left everything she valued right there. And then she looked back, and the volcano overtook her and cost her her life. We need to be like Paul, like Caleb, who pressed on until his very last breath. And the reason Caleb followed God fully is because God says he's got a different spirit. He has another spirit, a different spirit. I found that interesting. He certainly has got a different spirit than the other two million Israelites, right, who wanted to kill him and said, we're not going into the land, we're scared of these giants. He certainly had a different spirit to them. It seems as though God is telling us that Caleb was filled with the Holy Spirit. The human spirit is that part of us that's designed to have a relationship with God, but as a result of the indwelling Holy Spirit, Caleb's Human spirit was humble and courageous and zealous and faithful. And he said, God's description of him, in five times in Scripture, it says, Caleb followed the Lord his God fully. That's a pretty good, you could put that on your gravestone. Matter of fact, we have that on our son's gravestone. This is his verse. His name was Caleb, and this is his verse. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then God the Holy Spirit can do things through us that we can never do on our own. You know, Lord willing, we'll be on carry tomorrow. The issue is not whether we're going to be on carry tomorrow. The issue is, will the Holy Spirit bless this ministry and bring people to Jesus as a result of it? That's all that matters, is if the Holy Spirit takes the words, His word, and accomplishes His work. Nothing else matters. So if you want to pray, pray that the Holy Spirit will minister through those words to accomplish His purposes and bring people to Jesus. That's the whole point. That's why we're here. Now, we have Caleb as an example of faithful obedience. God now talks to the rest of the nation through Moses, and He says to them in verse 28, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, 
except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. As for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you have spied out the land for 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. Woo! Here's the principle. <clears throat> when God says, have it your way, our own choices become our judges and cause suffering for others as well as ourselves. Let me repeat that principle. When God says, have it your way, our own choices become our judges and cause suffering for others as well as ourselves. I just realized that that was a Burger King commercial tagline for decades. Have it your way. You know, how many ways can you get charbroiled? I don't know, you know. Have it your way. This is human nature, right? We want it our way. And God says, you want it your way? Have it your way. Here's the discipline that's going to be involved. You're going to wander for 38 more years, 40 years totally. You've already been in the wilderness two years. You're going to get 38 more. Every male, 20 years old and upward, is going to die in the wilderness in that next 38-year period. And by the way, the 10 spies who lied about me and misrepresented the land as being a bad land, they died by the plague immediately. The wages of sin is, in fact, death, right? So God's justice was very retributive in the sense that God judged them by giving them her own way. By the way, if God ever gives you your own way, that is not an act of love. That is an act of judgment. Sometimes you can bang on heaven's door and beg and plead and, and say, God, I want, I want, I want, I want. And God in his infinite wisdom may say to you, fine, have it your way. That should terrify you. Because your way and my way is never the best way if it opposes God's way. We call that poetic justice. If you look at YouTube, I'm not recommending you do this, but you'll see a little section called instant karma, right? Somebody does something stupid and they get whacked immediately, right? I mean, it, what goes around comes around. It doesn't come back in 30 years. It comes around in three seconds. You know, they big mouth somebody who knocks them out. Instant karma, right? It's poetic justice. It's fitting or retributive uh, justice. When Israel told God multiple times, this is not the first time they did this, by the way, they told him multiple times, it's better that we should die in the wilderness than follow you into Canaan. God said, fine, die in the wilderness. For 38 years, I'm going to impose your own choice as judgment for rejecting my will. You want to die in the wilderness? You're going to die in the wilderness. You know, ultimately, C.S. Lewis said, I thought it was a great quote, he said, at the end of the day, ultimately, either you say to God, thy will be done, or he says to you, thy will be done. And if God says to you, thy will be done for all eternity, 
That means you've chosen to go to hell and he's going to let you do it because you've said, my will be done. I'm not going to submit to your will. That's ultimate judgment that says, you want to spend eternity apart from me because you don't want to do it my way? Fine, I'll let you have your way. You're going to spend all eternity without me. That's called hell, separated from God. So when God gives you your way, and it's against his way, that's a form of judgment. God says a phrase here three times, and it absolutely should terrify us. He says, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Is that pretty graphic? Right? He says it three times. Now, a corpse is what? A corpse is a dead body. Right? There's no life in a dead body. You probably have a KJV version somewhere in your house, and it won't say corpse, it'll say carcass. It'll say carcass. Your carcasses will fall in this wilderness. Generally speaking, a carcass does not describe a human body. It describes a dead animal. Carcass of a dead animal. God is really saying, you are going to die like animals in the wilderness, and they're going to bury you in an unmarked grave, and it's going to be discarded, and it's going to be moved on from because you're wandering in the wilderness, and no one knows where you were buried. That's pretty harsh, but very just judgment. Now, you have a tiny minority. you got two people, Joshua and Caleb, that are blessed for their faithfulness. They're going to get into the land. The other two million plus are put under God's discipline for being unfaithful. By the way, the other lesson this should teach us is that the majority is often wrong. You ever notice that? People say, well, everybody believes, well, everybody can be sincerely wrong, right? At the end of the day, what God says matters. What people say is irrelevant compared to what God says. If you stand with God like Joshua and Caleb, you'll always succeed. There's no substitute for faith in God's promises and obedience. Now, let me give you just a little picture of this. Population of Israel at this point is between two and two and a half million people. It's a pretty significant chunk of folks. And they're all living under the cloud, so they don't bake like fish during the day, right? Because it's 100 plus degrees in the wilderness. The cloud covers them. They have manna. They have water, right? He brings water for them out of a rock, and they're probably at, in Kadesh Barnea as, a, as an oasis, so God's providing for them. Of that two and a half million people, 600,000 of them are warriors. They're 20 years old and upward, and they're ready to go to war, and we know they took the census two years ago in Numbers 1. God says every one of those 20 years older is going to die in the next 38 years in the wilderness. That's about 16,000 funerals a year or about 43 a day. I don't think Moses could do 43 funerals a day. That's a lot of funerals. And that's just for the men only. If you include normal aging and the deaths of their spouses, that's about 32,000 deaths a year. That's a lot of corpses. 32,000 people is a city. Tehachapi has about 12,000 people. Arvin has about 21,000 people. Every year, the city of Tehachapi and the city of Arvin, equivalent size, are dying in this population group for the next 38 years. The wages of sin, very expensive. It's no wonder when you read Psalm 90. So when you read Psalm 90, Moses wrote Psalm 90 during this period of time. And he talks about, man, we're all dying. We're going to turn back into dust. We got 70 years at the most, 80 years, right? So you understand the context behind that is this judgment of God or unbelief. 
The other lesson from this particular verse is, is that no one sins in isolation. All sin affects other people, not just yourselves. You know, it's interesting. We hear people go, well, I'm sinning, but it only affects me. Not true. Sin always affects everyone. The children of these unbelievers, God said, by the way, the children, your children under 20 years old, they're going to have to wait 38 more years because of your unbelief. They could have gone in now. You could have gone in now. But your unbelief cost you 38 years and cost them 38 years, right? Furthermore, they're going to watch you die in the wilderness for the next 38 years. They're going to bury you because of your unbelief. Because of your sin, you've judged them. You've made them live with the consequences of your sin. And of course, what did God say in the Ten Commandments? The sins of the fathers are visited on the children, right? Sin is contagious. Sin does cross generations. Let me say something. I, this is a very heavy message today, but I think it's very important. Mom and dad, grandpa and grandpa, if you love your children, if you love your grandchildren, kill your sin. Don't tolerate it. We should not tolerate anything in our lives that does not honor God, or we're going to live probably to see that same sin show up in the lives of our children and grandchildren. What we tolerate and excuse, they watch and do more of. What we say, well, you know, I only did that a little. They're doing it a lot. And in 20 years you go, what happened? Well, they saw what you did, and what you did a little of, they did a lot of. Take sin seriously. This generation didn't, and their entire children, next generation, suffered as a result of it. Verse 39. And when Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, why then are you transgressing the commitment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, lest you be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. Verse 44, but they went up heedlessly to the ridge country. Verse 45 says, then the Canaanites came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Here's the principle. Disobedience produces defeat because God opposes anything that dishonors him. Disobedience produces defeat because God opposes anything that honors him. See, Israel wanted to obey God on their terms. God, I'm going to go in the land when I'm ready to go in, not when you're ready. And I'm ready to go into the land after you have pronounced judgment, but the, the opportunity is already passed, right? It's too late. Israel, quite frankly, wasn't really sorry over sin. They were sorry over the consequences of sin. They weren't, they weren't you know, how many of you have children that have said, they really didn't get sorry until they saw you grab the stick. Has <laughs> that ever happened to you? You go, you do that, I'm going to paddle your bottom. And they go, nah, nah, nah. and then you grab the stick, and you grab them, and then it's, Mom, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry, I promise, I'll be good. No, you're not. You just know that now I'm going to whack your bottom, right? You don't want the consequences of the sin. It's not that you're sorry that you went, nah, to me. It's that... I'm going to spank you, and now you don't want the consequences. That's Israel. Once God said, 38 years in the wilderness, they go, oh, we're, we're, 
We're sorry. We're sorry. We sinned. But we'll go in. No, they were sorry over the consequences. They weren't sorry they had sinned against God. They were sorry they got out of wandering into the 38 years. So God had told them in verse 25, turn around and go back to the wilderness. You're not going forward into the land. You're going back to the wilderness. And the very next morning they say, we're ready to go in. Matter of fact, we're ready to invade Canaan. Despite the fact that God had told them to turn around. So they disobeyed him twice, right? They must think that God doesn't really care about obedience or that he's going to change his mind once they begin the invasion. What's fascinating here is 24 hours earlier, God had said, my power is available for you to go in the land. And they said, no, 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 no. God, you're not bigger than the giants. We can't do this. 24 hours later, after God says, you're going to wander in the wilderness, they go, we can go in and we don't need God to get it done. What's with this? I mean, is this, this is not very logical, right? What have we said in the class multiple times? Sin makes you stupid. Well, this is not living in light of reality for sure. So Moses says, by the way, God's not with you. Don't go up. They go up anyway. They get beaten. They get defeated. They have a running batter all the way south, the Hormel, which is south of Israel. Of course, the lesson from that last section is real simple. Today is the day to obey, Right? Even rhymes. Today is the day to obey. Not tomorrow. When God says do something, you know, when you tell your children or grandchildren to do something, when would you expect them to do what you tell them? How would you feel if your eight-year-old said, Grandpa, Grandma, you know, that's a, a, a pretty, um, pretty straight line you're taking with me. Could, could we negotiate that? How, how about if um, I think about that overnight and sleep about that? And I'll come back to you tomorrow and see if I'm really ready to obey you. How does that fly? Because it doesn't fly at all. I'm the parent. I'm the grandparent. I'm doing this for your own good. Do it. Or there's consequences, right? Well, God does the same with us. We're his children. He says, do it because my way is better than your way because I know the future. I love you. I'm your father. This is the part that is absolutely heartbreaking. And so when you, when you go through this section, when you're done, you're like, oh, man, you're underwater. You're depressed because they keep failing and failing and failing and disbelieving God. And so they get judged. And the New Testament tells us, look, all of these things are written for our instruction. So you don't have to go do what they did, right? You can, you can learn from other people's example. And so you don't have to create the same mistakes they did. And I think that's one of the primary reasons why God recorded this for us so we can look at our lives and say, you know, don't do what they did. Don't disobey. Don't be unbelieving. When God says to do something, he tells you to do something because it's in, it honors him and it's in your best interest to be obedient because he's your father. So let's review and then Marty will come up and lead us in prayer and praises. Principle number one, those who repeatedly reject God's grace may cross the line of no return where the only outcome is judgment. I would say this to anybody who says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about giving my heart to Jesus, but I'm going to wait a year or two. I'm going to sow my wild oats. I say, you may not get a chance. There may not be another chance. There may, you may have crossed the line and there's no more grace at that point because you're done. So don't keep rejecting God's grace. Respond to it. Number two, ultimately, God's forgiveness does not depend on our loyal conduct, but on his loving character. And that's where we as Christians live. We are not dependent on our good behavior to please God, 
We are dependent on Jesus Christ's good behavior, and he has paid for our sins because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for us. So we have a loving heavenly father who longs to forgive repentant people. Number three, choosing to do wrong when you know what is right insults God's glory and will surely be punished. Sinning against light, sinning against knowledge is despicable. Number four, God rewards those who follow him fully because they believe his promises and obey his commands. Number five, when God says, have it your way, our own choices become our judges and cause suffering for us as well as others. And lastly, disobedience produces defeat because God opposes anything that dishonors him. And you can invert that. Obedience always produces victory. Obedience to God always produces victory. I didn't say when you're going to experience that, but always aligning yourself with God's purpose produces his power in your life to accomplish his purposes, which is to bless you and through you bless others. Thank you. This was really heavy, um, but really important because the holiness of God is not compromisable. We need to understand that God loves us, and as a result of that, he says, there are things I want you to do, and there are things I don't want you to do. And if you follow him by faith, the blessings will overwhelm you. Please read ahead. Lord willing, we'll pick up the uh, lesson next week. Stay in numbers. I do love you. Now that you know, do. You've been listening to Manna at Valley Baptist Church. To hear this lesson and more, subscribe to our podcast, Manna at Valley Baptist Church, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Manna is taught by Brad Hannock and meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California. We believe in doing life together, and we encourage you to join us on Sunday morning. For more information, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for studying with us. And now that you know, do.